0: Hi, it's Kwechel it's Nick here, and you're listening to TFUV 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the traditional territories of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Hustinich people. Hola, mi nombre es Matilde Cervantes Navarrete. My name is Matilde Cervantes-Navarrete, and I am a doctoral student at the University of Victoria. I'm the producer of Beyond the Jargon of season number nine, and today I'm also going to be your host. Welcome to episode number three, season nine. Today I'm going to be your host, and we're going to have a wonderful guest again, His name is Daniel Godino, pronounced he, him. He is a doctoral student at the Social Dimensions of Health Program, School of Public Health and Social Policy at the University of Victoria. Daniel identified as a Latinx mestizo cis male. He was born and raised in Quito, Ecuador, where he completed his studies in international relations and political science. He later worked for a nonprofit organization supporting local and Latin American organizations focused in drug policy reform. This work sparked his interest of learning from the experience in British Columbia in adopting harm reduction policies and understanding the role of community based organizations and the drug users movements have had in motivating policy change in BC and Canada. Thank you so much for being here, listening to episode number three, season nine. Enjoy the podcast. Let's start. Hi, Daniel. How are you?
1: Hi, Maddie. I'm really good. Thank you for inviting me here.
0: Yeah. And well, I know you, but I would like to invite you to self-introduce for others that are listening and they would like to know who you are, what's your program, and what's your research topic.
1: Uh, yeah, so my name is Daniel Gudino. I am an international PhD student at the Social Dimensions of Health program. I'll be starting my fourth year, cis male. Um, I was born in Quito, Ecuador, which is the capital, um, and I've lived all my life there, And just moved with my partner here to Victoria to start to begin school in in 2018 uh so this is our first journey outside of of Ecuador and Latin America um so yeah enjoying enjoying Victoria uh very grateful to be in this indigenous lands and as an uninvited guest um yeah so I think that's that's me
0: Perfect, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your background and yeah how it feels to be an international student at the University of victoria how that um how has been that journey
1: uh, that's a that's a really interesting question very complex I guess there's two sides of it. The first side of it is um you have this you know general knowledge of Canada being very open to not only international students, but to, you know, um, uh, other cultures, very multicultural, other languages, people coming from all over the world. Um, And I guess what Canada brings is that it it allows you an opportunity or a path as a student to become a permanent resident, which not many countries offer you that option. Um, So it was a very interesting, you know, place for us to consider starting a new life, uh, my partner had already moved here before I did, so she kind of knew, um, you know, the place a little bit. She knew BC, so I kind of followed her. Um, and she opened, like, the, the path for me to come here. Uh, then, so I, I would say there's a, there's a place before you come to Canada and there's a place after you come to Canada uh after we came here it was it was a very interesting experience i've never experienced um a a postgraduate or even university experience outside of of latin america so i didn't know what to expect i had a lot of um questions about canadian academic culture i have never i did i have never engaged in research before i did my master's in political science so it was a different path because now i'm getting into a public health research program um and the the first i think the first hit for me was actually finding out how difficult it is to fund your research uh in top of that as an international student you are not eligible for any of the tri-council funding which is the, the the biggest fund that you can apply for uh, and that was a big shock for me because not only not being able to access those funds which is you know substantially how you um, you know how you sustain your family how you sustain yourself in, in, in Canada uh, you also lose the opportunity to go through what the research experience as a graduate student go so that means you know learning what a research proposal is, uh, going through the funding experience, working with your supervisor to, to that. So I think I, I lost that opportunity compared to my, to my Canadian peers who worked their first term with their supervisors in making a proposal, putting it up to consideration for the funding, and then going through the whole process. I had to wait until my the end of my second year to go through that experience and kind of, you know, learn it from my own perspective because I I just couldn't get it as an international student.
0: That's a very that's a very good point. Um, and I really, I hear you also because I have been also through those stages as an international student. So yeah, it makes total sense. Um, and it, it is definitely uh, more difficult for international students to fund our own studies and then we have a tuition that is higher mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> more expensive for international students but yeah um, besides that um, I, I would like to see and then also I want to say that I also I like the comment around there is um, a perception about Canada before getting here and after mm-hmm. when you are here and that's a very good point never thought about that until mm-hmm. now that you raised that point so yeah, but uh, what about if we le- move on to the research topic? Especially, could you tell us about your involvement with the CSER and mm-hmm. what is CSER stands for? If you can remind me, please.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, I'd like to begin saying that my uh, r- supervisor, my research supervisor, is Dr. Bernie Polly. She's, um, she's a scientist at the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. That's what CSER stands for. And she's also prof at uh, nursing school here at UBIC, which I think it's part of human and social development, if I'm not wrong. Um, and uh, the way that I came to UBIC is actually thanks thanks to her. I was uh, before coming to Canada. I was doing. I was working for a for a nonprofit uh, for ten years in Ecuador, where. I specialize in um, doing research in drug policy. And I was interested in seeing international experiences to change the way that drug policy has been done in Ecuador. Um, And that experience led me to an international uh, conference. I wouldn't say, well, conference, it's from the United Nations. It was a big official conference from the countries um, in New York in 2016 where I actually got to meet and have a, a, a conversation with, with members of the Canadian um, delegation. Not the official, I mean the official one, but not from state representatives, but from the civil society representative. Which for me was really interesting to learn because what you hear from Canadian drug policy in, in the United Nations is that it, you know, it's so progressive you learn about you know, um, the developments in terms of policy, harm reduction policy, the opening of INSIGHT, which is the first supervised injection site in North America. Um, n- then in 2018, with legalization of cannabis, You know, everything you hear about that, but it's very focused on the institutional and government piece of Canada, but nothing gets reflected on the work of actually of advocates and people who use drugs and their movements and their organizations who are the ones who actually have made that possible. Mm. So I got to meet someone from civil society there, and that was back in 2016. I said, I'm very interested in, you know, getting to know more about the history of BC. And he said, well, if you know, if you ever come here, just shoot me an email. We'll be able to talk. Actually, that happened in 2018 when I came to visit my partner, who was already in Vancouver. Uh, we met and uh, as, a, as a, you know, as a person from, from a civil society organization, they said, Well, if you are interested in studying, I would suggest you meet with Dr. Polly in Victoria. So my partner and I got into a car, got into the ferry, came to the island, we didn't expect that to happen, and Dr. Polly met me for coffee. uh, And she was interested in in having someone from Ecuador coming to learn from the experience of BC in doing harm reduction policy and bringing that for a country like Ecuador, in a global, in a global South experience in a Latin American context. Uh, so, actually, my th- that's something that I think it's uh, one one aspect that I really appreciate from from Ubeck is that it allowed me to move from a political science background to do public health research, which not. Any other university in the world actually allowed me because I I applied to a number of, of them and they were not interested in having a policy uh, public policy major doing health research. Um, and 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 the other thing that I appreciate so much about UBEC is that it has a strong connections with with local with the local community. So researchers here at UBEC they have a strong Commitment to making the life of people around the university in the city of Victoria, in the province of BC, and in Canada in general, in other places of the world, to make them the lives better, so make their research meaningful to improve their lives, uh, and that's what I found in in Cesar um, Bern, Bernie Dr. Dr. Polly is um is a community-based researcher, um, so she. Uh, graciously allowed me to take advantage of, of, of what CSER offers for a student. And that led me, you know, not only getting an office and, 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 and you know, and being surrounded by other researchers and students.
0: Wow, quite like that's a, a good journey. And I can see um, how also like serendipity came into place maybe in that journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but definitely you you also follow love because <laughs> you follow your girlfriend, right? Like that that's also a, a, a story for maybe another time. Let's keep this in the academic uh, strain. But um, another thing that I want to recognize is that Bernie Polly is um, very well known nationally and internationally. Mm-hmm. So it's great to have a supervisor and to be involved in in those projects that she's leading and also the resources not only like knowledge or networking but also being part of that important center at the University of Victoria Mm -hmm. it gives a very good platform so congratulations and I know you are now in a different stage like you have been working so hard in your project could you tell us what's your your topic, what's the title and what's the research question and other other details that you want to share with us?
1: Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that question. (laughs) So um, when I came here, as I mentioned, my idea was to learn from how BC does policy for, uh, in terms of of substance use, and how people who use drugs are involved in that policymaking. And my idea was to learn from that experience and then share, you know, um, elements of that that we could use in a Latin American context. Um, While I was doing my research and while I was getting through coursework and getting more into what my topic was going to be like, um, and, you know, learning from, from you know these these scientists who are very engaged in in community-based uh, research, um, I got to really appreciate and understand what critical role have uh, communities in the way that policies get made and how policies change and what policies are intended to do. Mm. Uh, that's something that I didn't appreciate before, and how difficult is policymaking, policymaking is in different contexts. Um, so while I was finishing my coursework for my PhD, um, starting to work into my doctoral examinations and then into my doctoral proposal, um, Dr. Paul invited me to join a research project, which at the time, um was starting right in the middle of uh I want to say right at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. So thinking about, you know, April May of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um and this is really important of how it it shaped the way that I was thinking. So I was finishing coursework. Uh, I had one more class to go, uh, and then the pandemic hit. And actually, I was coming back from Mexico from a from a course that I that I went for for uh, two weeks. And you know, two weeks after I came back on February, we were, uh, you know, lockdown started, and and everything changed with with COVID. Um, so while I was, you know, trying to So I was finishing coursework while the pandemic was starting to to, to begin. So I was trying to figure out what that that meant for me. Right. So just moving out from the office, working from home as well as my partner. My partner was laid off. Um, So we're trying to figure out what what's going to happen. Right. Um, And uh, uh, I I didn't know how to begin working in my doctoral exams. Uh, It was hard to reach you know my profs and and my supervisor, um, so just trying to navigate into the into those waters. Uh, and something that happened is that, um, so what what I think before before talking about COVID, BC has declared a public health emergency since 2016 related to the high overdoses in the in the province. Mm-hmm. That happened when in 2016, the first three months of 2016, um, overdose rates in, in, in BC is starting to hike. So uh, and, and, that, and that moment meant that over almost 200 people had uh, died because of overdoses in the province. And that prompted the, the BC government to declare a public health emergency in April 2016. So since April April twenty sixteen up until now, we've been in a public health emergency related to overdose. And public health emergencies really mean that you you address the issue as uh, as you would address the uh, outbreak of a of an of a of an illness, right? So you give more funding, you provide resources for um, getting more information and to opening specific services and doing more research. So there was you know a, a, a multiple mobilization from policy from government to actually address the issue.
0: And, and Daniel, I don't know if you are maybe making the point to this one, but I yeah. by, by, while listening to you, I'm starting to or see this connection between the two public health crisis and maybe that's where you're going but it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's working <laughs> yeah if that's if, if, if that's your purpose is working because it's making me think about these two public health crises, but how they have been approached by government by policies and by citizens mm-hmm. um, so anyway just keep keep going but I wanted to say like oh this is working okay and maybe for those who are listening connecting the dots
1: Right. Yeah, exactly, that, that was my point. I wanted to show you how, how those look different. And, and I think that the word here is the, the policy, the policy decision in, in the BC government is called, it's, it's to frame this problem as, a, as an emergency rather different than a crisis. Mm. And the difference between an emergency and a crisis in terms of policy means that the way that you uh, apply resources and how you um, how you tackle the issue. Uh, which I thought it was really interesting, uh, something that my supervisor pointed to me because I was writing as a public health crisis, and she said, no, 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 you got to address it from an emergency perspective because in policy that means something different.
0: That's great. I, I actually I like that you are uh, correcting me about those terms because this program is beyond the jargon. Yeah. And that's the thing with concepts and terminology. We want to n- understand how to use it better and, like, even there is a, a big one in, in terms of substance use. I know some people keep using the, like, I don't know, like drug drug addicts or mm-hmm. addicts, uh, addictions mm-hmm. or um, different to versus substance use right. or user. Right. Um, and maybe before we jump to that, could you elaborate that also? What's the distinction between, and, and, and I know those distinctions sometimes carry some... Political yeah. concepts, but also um, the terminology in the academia means something different, and then public health organizations, perhaps, is another thing. How can you um, share with us those distinctions between addicts right. or uh, substance users or users?
1: Right. Um, I, I think it's a really good point. Uh, the I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's it's an academic. Exercise is more of a community exercise. It's taking back the language, right? It's because language creates realities, and in substance use, the word "the word addiction" has created a reality where people who use drugs have been stigmatized because of their choice to use substances, right? Um, and it's particularly targeted to specific substances in the history and cultural. In, in this particular moment in the world, because I like if you open up to the fact that we all are substance users, to the fact that we are, you know most of most of us who don't label ourselves as addicted, we we still use coffee, we still use sugar, and we are not labeled as addicted. Uh, while people who you know decide to use, Heroin or other types of substances who have been deemed illegal by policy, um, they have been targeted and stigmatized through this word of addiction or addicted. Um, there's ver- there's anthropology studies that have been studying how language is being used, and that the r- main reason for thinking about what language to use in in substance use, particularly, is because there's a, there's a specific strategy to othering, uh, someone who is different, right? So it was used, so these categories were used for othering in terms of racial bias or othering in terms of, you know, of class, so poor, rich or by gender, uh, by gender identity, um, you know, so I think language takes another importance in this because community use this um, or think about language in the way to reclaim their dignity, their autonomy, their um, uh, opportunity for ma- to make their own decisions on on their body, on their health.
0: I um, really like that, and I I really appreciate that you are. Highlight, highlighting the um, community aspect mm-hmm. of those narratives mm-hmm. and those like kind of reclaiming that. Yeah. And we we will have another Beyond the Jargon program that is around the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me those stories around the queerness and right. the queer word. Right. and how they also did that reclamation. And we are going to have another program that is also about a stereotype mm-hmm. and um, stereotype and a stigma. Mm-hmm. So it makes me think how, and it's, it's, it's good for me to hear um, that across different programs, different grad students mm-hmm. are working with different research topics, but there is a common theme. That Community engagement, um, importance, like the relevance of that. It's, it's, I can see that. And the kind of fighting against or trying to tackle the stigma and the stereotyping uh, components of, in society, of the, of the research team that we're working on. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, just to go back to the case that we're talking about today is substance use. But I really like how you are um, pointed out that it's a community, like it's not really an academic, it's from community. Mm-hmm. And that talks a lot about your own work with community and the approaches that you are taking.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, but I'm sorry, Daniel, did you say the, the, the title of your topic?
1: Yeah, because it's just a, get, it's okay. a proposal. But um, so before I, the only the last thing that I wanted to mention about the word addiction is that the way that it's contested as well in communities because it actually doesn't mean anything. Mm. Um, addiction was used to um, frame it in 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 terms of of psychology uh, majors to um, or, or field to kind of explain something that um, was being targeted by policy in 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 a way that. It doesn't really reflect what you're trying to convey with the word Mm -hmm. so addiction for instance addiction uh if you see the the research that's been coming out for years now um it doesn't really reflect the way that people engage with substance use so addiction means for 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 some people addiction means you know people who use regularly drugs, but it doesn't really mean how it impacts your health, how it impacts your well-being, or your material conditions. So that's why it's being contested, because it actually doesn't really mean something beyond that specific designation to be useful to policy.
0: And stigmatize. And stigmatize. <laughs> yeah, some, sometimes those words are useful for policy and also for stigmatize <laughs> that's a that's a good example uh, but i i certainly think that there are many examples like this one in other like social sciences and public health so daniel yeah what's the proposal topic and the research question and yeah share about that
1: yeah, So i was I, I was mentioning before um so BC has this public, um, overdose emergency declared since 2016. And that has been on in ongoing until now. And if you fast forward that to March, 2020 with, uh, the public health emergency of COVID, um, then you find a space where two public health emergencies are colliding each other. And the research that we're seeing right now coming out is that COVID, it's impacting heavily on the public health overdose emergency, mainly by two ways. If you see the public health um, communication to respond to the, to the um, COVID emergency, it, it prim- primarily focused on two things. The one thing was on social distancing measures. And that assumes a number of things, right? So assumes that you have a house, assumes that you can work, your work is, uh, you know, you can you can migrate your work to do it from a place where you can call a house or from somewhere that you can isolate, uh, isolate correct? Uh, and the other one is specifically the, uh, and, and that that led to, you know, either the closing of some services like we, we saw in health services that were directed only towards or mainly towards people who were um, experiencing or at risk of getting COVID. Um, so there were a number of assumptions that were made from that. And the other the other factor was that when we closed the world for COVID, we also closed the borders. And something that it's now been reflected on research is that the closure of borders impacted the way that the illegal drug market is being experienced by people who use drugs. So drugs are not produced in Canada, right? They come from outside of the country through the borders. So if the borders are closed, and people are accessing the illegal market, the drugs need to come from somewhere, right? And the easy, I guess, I don't want to say the easy part, but the the best way to make that work is that you have something that you are going to sell. You're just going to divide that into very small pieces And you're going to mix that with something so you can sell it as if it's the first thing or as it was the the, the same thing that you were using before. So two impacts that you're seeing from COVID is that social isolation uh, led people to, you know, use alone, not being... um, Um, connected with services, either medical or, you know, the ones that are uh, developed from a harm reduction perspective, so supervised injection site or uh, harm reduction site or, you know, um, any uh, social housing facility or, you know, anything that will allow you to... um,
2: Get support.
1: Get support, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And from the other side, the closure of borders making... The illicit illicit drug market very volatile because now since drugs are not coming into the country, you will, you need to still you know make the market work without those. Um, wow, that that materials. really impressed
0: me because I I usually read like I like to read the news and to keep. Myself updated, Those. but they never thought about you that are, impact. And, and
1: that's and that's something that has been challenged also. This is not an, this is not a, this is not an opioid crisis because it's not only affecting people who use opioids, and it's not it's not um, reflected on the on the substance that you use, but it's because of the factors that make that substance so lethal. So people have been using heroin for, you know, ages. Like we used to have heroin being prescribed in 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 the uk in the in the early uh, 1900s canada did it too in the mid of the century in the 1900s as well um other places have experimented with it like switzerland has uh programs where you can actually have prescribed heroin heroin you can use uh, you have been using opioids in many ways so we have used morphine for uh medical um, and and
0: maybe sorry for yeah. interrupting you but so, what is opioids? Like, how can we explain someone? What is opioids then?
1: Yeah. So, opioids are uh, it's a sus- a substance that is extracted from plants okay. and has anal- analgesic um, uh, properties. Right. So, it's been used for for medical purposes for analgesic purposes. And then, what
0: is happening right now is that some people is adding fentanyl. To make it stronger, to like you can be like higher or what? So
1: fentanyl is, is it's a, a chemical s- it's, a sy- it's a synthetic opioid. So synthetic means that it's made in a lab. Okay. Uh, and what happens is that it's being mixed to the to the substances that were you once were you know natural. I, I'm quoting that. I, I'm doing air quotes for listeners. Um, that it's that it was made that came from a plant, right? So it was it was a natural. Um, and then synthetic opioids synthetic drugs what they aim to do is to um, to duplicate the effect that you would get from a plant but made from you know materials in the lab So fentanyl is an, a, is, a, is a synthetic drug that has higher potency than what normally you will find in heroin So people who are used so you think about when, you know, you go into, you know, I don't know, a liquor store and you focus on getting a beer or you focus on getting, you know, a glass of champagne or a glass of wine and you kind of know what's going to do to you, right? So, you know, you know how you tolerate alcohol, you know, how you, how you mix it, you know, how to, you know, when you want to use it. People who engage with, the legal market they they don't know that so you go with your head thinking that you're gonna buy heroin which you have been doing for you know the last 20 years or so or maybe less and you find that you know your the substance that you are trying to get from the street is actually not the same as you were expecting so i i really want to Take this away from the substance because the substance is not the issue. Are the policies who are around the substance? So it's not. There were many people who were already using fentanyl, but they were used to that potency. They they created they created they created their their um their experience of substance use related to the potency of fentanyl. But then there was a lot of people who were not exposed to that experience. Who are now, you know, suddenly exposed to, you know, you're you're using the same quantity and the same in the same manner that you were using previously your substances, and now you're going into this this situation where you might overdose mm-hmm. because the potency is much higher.
0: And then you're getting a product that you don't really know what it has, like right. in terms of, like you don't have a label that is telling you yeah. how much it has and what percentages and yeah. da da da. And so uh, the, I have heard about some advocacy work in terms of um, regulating that. And maybe like even like the same way that cannabis has been regulated, hard drugs can be also regulated. Is hard drugs a good term? Or maybe you can correct me. I, I, I'm just saying yeah. what I have read in the no, news, I'm but just... maybe they are wrong. And yeah. maybe I'm wrong too. Is, is hard, ro- hard drugs a Correct term or no?
1: I usually don't use that term. What, um, what should I use? Or? Because it, it also makes this othering possible, right? So mm-hmm. people who use soft drugs and people who use hard drugs, and that really depends on you know your social. context. I'm so
0: afraid what I'm saying now no. today, but it makes sense because um, I what the, many many of the things that I know are I have learned it on like my family or yeah. or the news but sometimes they are not uh, as educated as you are and have the, all that background. Mm-hmm. And and I like how you are thinking on the social impact and the stereotype, the mm-hmm. um, yeah, stigma, and sometimes we don't think about those things and how our words can impact. So I, I really appreciate this. So anytime, please correct me.
1: Yeah, and no, I think it's just the uh... It's what the intention of the word is trying to say, right? So I think usually hard drugs are used in the context of... I, it's it's a drug that I wouldn't use personally, right? I think that's how people say, mm. you know, it's just like... I use substances, but those people use hard drugs, right? So I think that's that's the intention of it. The other thing is also that hard drugs tend to be labeled as the ones that you can get, you know, more... Um more connected to quickly so that means that you are gonna you know be dependent on use mm. more frequently so otherwise wh- what other
0: more... what is the alternative word or term to use So that that's why or maybe not using not distinguishing that is just yeah. u- substance substances yeah, yeah. Substances. so it,
1: it really depends so uh, and that's what I was saying the th- challenging the word of addiction because addiction, so uh, challenging the word of addiction, for instance, labels something specific that um, would would point towards someone who is using frequently, right? So that connection actually places um, places someone into a place where uh, your substance use defines you, right? So that's, I think, that was the the reason why I wanted to challenge addiction, and the reason why I want to move away from hard and soft drugs is because it's not the substance, it's not the it's not the plants, it's not the the focus of policy should not be in in, in specifically what people are using, but the conditions around those people who either you know use this substance in a context, use this substance for a reason, and what the use of that substance does for their well-being, but also for their material and social conditions. So, you know, either like a hard, like defining something as a hard drug might place you in jail compared to someone who uses a soft drug. And that also that only leads, you know, to I don't know um, uh, a, a fine or or something like that. It, that mm-hmm. that definition actually placed has has a meaning in policy.
0: So, the, the there was um, something on the news the other day around these advocacy groups trying to label and legalize like heroin. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, and. Uh, to avoid or reduce the risk of mm-hmm. um, overdose in mm-hmm. the fentanyl situation, mm-hmm. do you think that's something feasible for Canada? And
1: so, BC has moved to decriminalize uh, the simple possession of of substances, and that's aimed to reduce the rates of incarceration, which, as decades of research has shown, putting someone in jail doesn't make them. Stop using substances. Uh, it just creates a number of other factors which you didn't have before. So it just makes your life even more difficult. Um, I think Canada has. So Canada has a very particular political um, system that because of how the way the provinces work compared to the federal government. um, I think it kind of makes, it it makes a little bit more difficult from my perspective to do policy making in that way. The way that international drug policies work is that the federal government has to respond to the limitations of the international drug regime, which would make more difficult to make those changes that you're wanna make in in, in local in local policies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the policy approach to drug recriminalization from BC it's gonna be it's an important step. It's a small step into what uh, it's needed for the current um, situation for the in current the situation. Um But it's certainly a first step, mainly, and I say a first step because the amounts that have been decriminalized and the policies that are around it don't necessarily move us to a place where substance use and people who use drugs are going to be destigmatized and where police actually doesn't have an active role in making decisions in how those policies get enacted.
0: Yeah. And Daniel, um, I'm conscious about time and there's so much we can keep talking, but I would like to also kind um, of use the a, a, a couple words or terminologies also, just because this is beyond the jargon, uh, around the term of harm reduction. Mm-hmm what it is, and then you mentioned something about injection sites.
1: Supervised injection Supervised
0: sites. Supervised injection sites. Mm-hmm. So um, even for me that I'm a little bit familiar with these terms, uh, I'm wondering if you can explain further what it is harm reduction, what it refers to, yeah. and then the supervisor injection sites. I think that's that may be a new thing, especially for Latin American um, well, I, I can see your face because um, I, w- I, w- I wanted to say, especially for people who is not familiar with this and maybe from Latin America, mm-hmm. but I know in Latin America we have some of those cases, right? In Mexicali, am I yep. right? And I'm from Mexicali, so, um, but maybe for the rest of the country, it's not something that we know. But anyway, could you um, share with us those two things, please, before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, uh, so harm reduction is a philosophy which um, it has been developed by people who use drugs to um, critically think about your relationship with Substance use, specifically harm reduction, has been developed in the the context of substance use to critically think about a philosophy of how your relationship with drugs um, shape your life. And what harm reduction is trying to tell you is that is not the substance that defines you, and is what you want to make from your life in the decision that you're making and how substances can support you towards that goal. And harm reduction what does is provides you with I want to say a blueprint or with options where you can choose uh, you know from a from a wide range of, of options what you can use and how you can use that without damaging your health without damaging others and without affecting your social and emotional life and and supports around you. Um, That's from, I would say, a philosophy perspective. The other one, the more reduced concept of harm reduction is the one that is focused on the provision of services. And the provision of services means, in particular, something that you pointed out about asking me what's a supervised injection site. And a supervised injection site comes from a harm reduction. It's a place where you can come in, you can uh, use your drugs in a supervised, uh, in, 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 in uh, supervised site, um, where people can actually tend to you. You know, so if, if you, you know, go into an an overdose, someone can respond to that overdose. Or, you know, if you go into, uh, I don't know, in a state of mind where you need to be kind of calm, they can calm you down. Or if you need some water, if you need some food, if you need to lay down, you can actually have some space where you can have safely the substance that you're choosing. Many people also happen to have, you know, if you use a substance, you alter your, your, your state of mind, right? So many people, for instance, who use in, in, in the streets, they get, they get assaulted or they get robbed. So you have someone who is taking care of you while you are using your
0: substance. Thank you for explaining that. And I have been always curious of how those sites... Manage, especially in Latin America. Mm-hmm. I don't know here in Canada if 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 those users are using an illegal substance. Mm-hmm. So how that site can be allowed to do that? Be- like, what are the protocols there? The permits or the legal frameworks, or maybe the policy frameworks.
1: So the sites don't provide with substances, right? The sites what provide is with the materials you use. You need to use. Uh, for the way that you're using your drugs. So it could be their pipes for smoking, it could be uh, sterile uh, needles or injections if you need that, um, or whatever other materials, a cooker if you need to heat your substance, Um, but they don't provide substances. Uh, As a user, you bring your own substance to the site and then you have on site, you know, someone who knows uh, medical aid so that could be a nurse or someone who knows first aid. Uh, and then some others have other services that I mentioned you know a place where you can sleep for instance or you can get some something to drink or something or some food for instance um, So that's what and, and the, the, the legal framework for that for those working is that um, it, it's a very long story but if you want to know it, it this idea came back from the movement in the 90s, who were trying to um, support people who were going through the HIV um, crisis pandemic, uh, where you know the 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 high level of of transmission was not only sexually but also because of the exchanges of of needles. So, safe injection sites and supervised injection sites. What allowed is for you to get you know. The Absolutely. access to 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 um to uh, materials, and you don't uh, risk, um you know other factors where you can get, you know you can get sick or you can get um,
0: infected. Yeah, well that that's a great point. Um, thank you so much, Daniel. I'm afraid we are running out of time, but I think it's it has been so interesting and uh, so interesting, and I have been learning a lot, um, and I feel like, I don't know, do you want to add anything else that we have not talked about it, but you think is important? I I, ha- I have the feeling that we didn't touch about your work of how you managing the information from Canada and bringing that knowledge to the context of Ecuador, for example. Mm-hmm. How you are making those linkages between Latin America, South America, and Canada uh, through your own research, but if if there is anything you want you would like to share around that mm-hmm. or anything else, please go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I, I think I'd, we didn't get to actually talk about my research proposal, but I <laughs> I can I can probably say it in five minutes. So my research proposal is looking at that intersection between COVID and the overdose um, emergency, right? This so, is the full circle. We're going the, back to the... <laughs>
0: yeah. We got so distracted, but uh, there is, like, so much <laughs> to talk about, It right? Yeah. yeah, go ahead.
1: So that in in that dual dual uh, public health emergency, as I mentioned, there was an opening for a policy space for doing noble drug policy in Canada. And BC explored that option to um, create um um a, a clinical guidance to provide people who use drugs with pharmaceutical alternatives to the drugs that they were accessing from the legal market and that's that policy it's called it's not actually a policy it's a guideline it sorry it's a guidance a clinical guidance called the risk mitigation guidance So my research is focused on understanding, why the BC government thought that that was the best approach to address the dual public health emergencies in BC, to reduce the rates of overdose from people dying from contaminated toxic illicit drug supply in BC, how that guidance will decrease the rates and the the factors associated with overdose in BC. And from that experience, Learn how um, other jurisdictions in Canada and in the world can go a- about uh, this approach to the prescription of pharmaceutical alternatives from the illicit drug supply, but also something that is comp- that that's I would say the clinical the clinical or, or the medical perspective to the fact the community-based approach to that one is something that drug users and drug user advocates and their communities and their groups have labeled as safe supply so safe supply is the opportunity to access what you are accessing in the illegal drug market from something that is regular as it has been um re- regulated uh has been uh, approved and has you know quality control so you know what it's what it's in that substance so you actually don't die so my my uh, my proposal is looking at how that policy is gonna, uh, what it's gonna do with over those rates, um, why the BC province why the BC province took this approach, and what the other jurisdictions in Canada, and this is now your que- a point to your question, what countries in Latin America can learn from this experience of you know, a government providing people who use drugs with a legal supply of drugs. Um, and how that can affect or can make a positive contribution or other contributions to decreasing the rates of overdoses.
0: I think you're going to pass your proposal defense you. <laughs> 100% sure. Thank you so much, Daniel. I think your research is the type of research that we need in community because it saves lives. And I can see a lot of value on this type of work. I'm so proud of your work, I'm so proud of you, and I'm so proud that the University of Victoria and Cesar is working in communities to improve the life of so many, but also to save lives, because I really think this has a positive impact in saving lives of so many. Um, thank you so much again, and hopefully we can have you one more time here at CFUV. Thank you. and. If people want to get in touch with you is there any um, like contact information that you would like to share with people who is listening? Maybe your email or an office, I don't know
1: I think the easiest way to contact me is through Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle is at G-U-D-P-E-7 pay 7 or you can just search my name Daniel Goodino Perez in Twitter um, I think that would be the easiest way to to contact me if you want to have a chat
0: okay we have here a twitter person that's the first one (laughs) uh, from many that has been have been participating in this program so let's get uh, ready your twitter accounts and get in touch with daniel godinio This podcast was produced by CFUV with financial support from the University of Victoria's Graduate Student Society and their members. CFUV is a non-profit radio station broadcasting from the University of Victoria campus on the traditional, unceded, and surrendered territories of the Saanich and Lekwengens peoples. Visit CFUVpodcast.com or search for CFUV wherever you get your podcast for more homegrown cutting-edge content.